0: So the author tipped us off to this reality that he had much to say concerning this order of Melchizedek, and he, he parked this topic, if you will, and he went on to rebuke and warn and encourage his readers there in, in chapter number six with some additional teaching while continuing to drop these breadcrumbs concerning this order of Melchizedek, and it's, it's right here in chapter number seven that the author finally gets to fulfill the promise of chapter number five and fully unpack this intriguing figure of Melchizedek that we see here in chapter seven. But before we jump into this exposition, I think it's helpful to understand how this chapter is is structured and organized. Chapter seven can really be broken down into two main sections. The first covers verses 1 through 10, and it's going to focus our attention on the superiority of the priest king of Melchizedek. And then in verses 11 through 28, we're going to see a shift over and, and draw our attention back to Jesus and the superiority that he claims as the true fulfillment of the eternal priest and king that the life of Melchizedek was pointing forward to. So in a sense, we're going to see Melchizedek as a Christological figure. He is looking forward to the true and eternal priest and king, Jesus Christ. As we've noted before, Melchizedek is, again, a unique character recorded in the pages of Scripture. There are only really four references To him, two in the Old, or excuse me, three references to him, two in the Old Testament, and then obviously right here in the book of Hebrews. We have the first account of Melchizedek. The first time we see him is in Genesis chapter number 14. And then we also see him once again in Psalm 110, verse number four. And we'll see. Melchizedek and this exposition of Psalm 110 as the author continues to look back to that Messianic Psalm. That said, chapter 7 is going to look back on both of these Old Testament references and verse number 1 and 10 is going to focus on the Genesis account and then the second half of this chapter verses 11 through 28 is going to really unpack once again Psalm 110 as our New Testament author quotes and looks back to that Old Testament text. So we've seen Melchizedek referenced now in chapter number five, verses six and 10. And again, in chapter number six, verse number 20, our brother Ed Young preached last week. And that final verse of chapter number six reminds us that Christ, the true high priest, has come after the uh, order of Melchizedek. If you remember with me, the audience of this letter is is whom? Likely would be Jewish Christians who many scholars believe would have been in Jerusalem at this time and genealogy and and ancestry and lineage as a whole would have been something these recipients would have understood the importance of and held in a very high regard. This is how they uh, provided value of an individual was their line and their lineage and their genealogy. So understanding these realities, the author is ready to dive into this difficult and hard teaching concerning the superior priesthood of Melchizedek, the one who does not have lineage and genealogy as recorded in scripture, but yet the word of God points to as a superior high priest, a forerunner, a foreshadow of this true and faithful and merciful and great high priest the one who is the priest king, Jesus Christ. So with that context in mind, the big idea of our text this morning is this. The superior priesthood of Melchizedek looks forward to Jesus Christ who will reign eternally as both our high priest and sovereign king. One more time, the superior priesthood of Melchizedek looks forward to Jesus Christ, who will reign eternally as both our high priest and sovereign king. So this morning, we're going to have three observations concerning this superior priesthood of Melchizedek. We're only going to make it through two of our points this morning. And so we're going to finish out this first section tomorrow morning, and then we're going to kick off verses 11 through 28 over the next uh, two weeks. So we're going to kind of work this all together as best as we can, but this morning we're going to look at two of our three observations concerning the superior priesthood of Melchizedek. And the first observation is this, Melchizedek resembles Jesus, but is distinct from him. We see this in verses one through three. Could follow with me as I read for this Melchizedek king of Salem priest of the most high god met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him and to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything he is first by translation of his name king of righteousness and then he is also king of Salem that is king a priest. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So what do we know about this priest, King Melchizedek? The answer to that question is surprisingly not much. Right? For a character in the book of Hebrews that holds so much weight and understanding and purpose and meaning, it's interesting that we just don't know a lot about Melchizedek. Outside of these two Old Testament passages of Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, we really have this limited insight into his life. That said, what what little we do have is extremely significant in understanding Jesus. And understanding our relationship with this great and faithful and merciful high priest, Jesus Christ, that is better, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews thus far. As we said prior, verses 1 through 10 is focused on this Genesis account of chapter number 14. So let's look into this Genesis account. And if you'll take with me a trip down memory lane, And we look all the way back to our our expositional series through the book of Genesis. Do you remember this this priest king, Melchizedek, coming up during that, that time frame? If you remember with me the immediate context of chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Genesis involve this narrative of Abraham and Lot. What happened? They, they separated. They went opposite ways. And why? Because they're, they're hired servants. Uh, they weren't getting along. This conflict had, had arose. And then in Genesis 13, verse 13, Abraham went towards the land of Canaan and Lot went towards where? You remember? Sodom. Soon after, we have a war that breaks out and And Sodom, along with four other kings, are defeated by this alliance of four kings from the north. As a result of this defeat, Lot was taken into captivity, and he was marched north toward this area of Mesopotamia. So this is the context that we're gathering here in Genesis chapter number 14. So what does Abraham do after hearing word of this? He immediately gathers men, an army of, of sorts, and he pursues these, uh, this alliance of this, these four kings from the north. Eventually, Abraham goes into battle with them. He is victorious, and he takes a lot and all of his possessions. What does he do? He heads back home, heads back south. Soon after, we have this encounter in Genesis chapter number 14. We have this encounter with the king of Sodom and that of the king of Salem, Melchizedek. The king of Sodom comes out and Abraham would have nothing to do with him. And it's, it's here that we see this a stark difference in how he relates to Melchizedek. He recognizes, whether it be by, by word or just by the spirit, I, we, we don't know, but ultimately Melchizedek is, is known to be a priest of the most high God. And so Abraham at that point realizes they're serving the same God. And so instead of rejection and separation, Abraham embraces this king of Salem, Melchizedek. This priest and king from Salem, which would likely have been in this area known to be Jerusalem, he comes out with what? With bread and wine and he blesses Abraham. Abraham. In contrast to this pagan king of Sodom, we find that Melchizedek and Abraham share this same God. God of the Most High. They are both worshipers of this God Most High. And we see this phrase four times in those short few verses there in uh, Genesis chapter number 14, where they are uh, known to be uh, relating to and worshiping God most high. And so with that context in mind, let's get back to our text in Hebrews chapter number seven. Not only do we know that Melchizedek is a priest of the most high God, but he also serves as king of Salem. Douglas Sweeney notes the following concerning Melchizedek's service as a hybrid priest-king. The Old Testament's Levitical priests were not to take on kingly duties. Neither were Israel's kings supposed to do the work of, of the priest. Such a combination was unknown under the Mosaic law. Yet, here was a person much earlier who took on both roles in the place that would become Jerusalem. So Melchizedek then stands as an incredible Christological figure, looking forward only to the priest-king, Jesus Christ. So the nuances of Jesus as our priest-king will continue on throughout this letter, but here we have this foreshadowing of Jesus as not just priest, but now king. Priesthood, as we noted earlier, involves representation, advocacy, and mediation, And now we have the kingship of Jesus on display. What does the kingship of Jesus involve? It would layer in understanding of dominion and authority and sovereignty. Yes, Jesus is our faithful, merciful, and great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. But through the gospel, he is also our sovereign king. And this Truth, this reality is important and the author of Hebrews wants to unpack this difficult topic of understanding the order of Melchizedek. Why? So that we could understand not only the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, but we could understand his his kingship. That he is sovereign. He does have dominion. He does have right and authority over our lives. He is our sovereign king. 1 Timothy chapter number 6 verses 13 through 15 speak of this kingship Paul writing to Timothy says this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good con- confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This was the testimony of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Revelation chapter number 17, verse number 14, they will make war on the Lamb, looking forward to this future end times. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of Kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14 in his prophecy, he states, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the kingship of Jesus. Just as Daniel notes the eternal nature of this kingship in his prophecy, we also see this as, import, as an important nuance of our text in Hebrews, chapter number seven. We see this in verse number three. He is without father. Or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. A priest forever. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. A priest forever. There's no beginning and no end to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. His kingship has no beginning and no end. This is who he is. He is king of kings and lord of lords. So It's interesting as we look at again this person of Melchizedek. The Scripture's silence on Melchizedek's birth and death certainly has Christological importance, right? Even though we may reasonably assume that Melchizedek did have a beginning and end of life, Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, notes the Holy Spirit had intentionally hidden these details in Genesis to make a point about the coming Christ, that He is eternal in nature. He has no beginning and no end. And what was the point to be made concerning the coming Christ? That his priesthood and his kingship are eternal in nature. So every other priest that would come from the tribe of the Levites and descendants of Aaron, every single one of them would have a recorded genealogy with a birth and a death. That individual service as priest had a beginning and it had an expiration date as they would pass away an end of life. Not so with the order of Melchizedek. This is what sets the the order of Melchizedek as a superior priesthood. Not so with Melchizedek. And certainly not so with the eternal King of Kings, Jesus Christ, who continues as priest and king forever. Do you believe that this morning? In the midst of all the chaos, craziness, and uncertainty that is going on in our world, Do you believe that Jesus is king? That he is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father? Friends, this world certainly is crazy at times. Circumstances of this life are difficult to bear. But the reality and the truth of who Jesus is truly is an anchor for our soul. Do you remember the great passage that Brother Ed preached just last week? Verse number 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus is doing this work where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So then, Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God. He is king of righteousness by translation of his name. He is king of Salem. That is king of peace. The priesthood and kingship are without end. All these nuances of Melchizedek are looking forward to all the beautiful facets of the gospel that are perfectly embodied in whom? Only Perfectly embodied in the personal work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, represents us perfectly before the Father as our high priest. He is righteousness. Thus, He is the King of righteousness. He is peace. Thus, He rules as the King of peace. And He is God, the Alpha, the Omega. Thus, His rule and reign are eternal in nature and will have no end. Friends, this is our priest and King Jesus. This is the difficult unpacking of the order of Melchizedek that the author of Hebrews had in mind. And with that said, I, I do want to make a quick remark in regard to um, a, a somewhat common belief concerning this particular passage that Melchizedek was not just a, a human being uh, a person in history as recorded in scripture, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, but rather this would even go a step further that Melchizedek, the priest king would even be that of a theophany or a Christophany. Christophany. Have, have you heard that before? They're right here in Genesis 14 that we are, we are, we are seeing an appearance, uh, a literal appearance of, of Jesus. I want to talk about that just for, just for a moment. A theophany or Christophany, what is that? It comes from the Greek word theophania, which which is translated as an appearance of God or a manifestation of deity in literal or sensible form. This is what a theophany or Christophany would be. So our first main point was what? Melchizedek resembles Jesus, but is distinct from him. Up to this point, all the comparisons that have been made that Jesus is better, there's first been a comparison, a a connection, a relation to the individual that they, uh, that Jesus is being compared against. But then it follows into what? A separation. That Jesus truly is better. Although there are similarities, although these other people are looking forward to Jesus Christ, they could never be or fulfill the role as the great high priest, or be who Jesus is. And so our first point was, Melchizedek resembles Jesus, but is distinct from him. So although Melchizedek was a Christological figure looking forward to Jesus, I would contend that he is not actually Jesus. I believe there are two major reasons for this likely position that we could look to from the text. The first word is this, uh, or the first aspect of this reality is from this word resembling. In verse number three, do you see that there? He is without father, a mother, a genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the author referring back to Melchizedek is described as resembling the son of God. And so a a simple and clear reading of the text says that Melchizedek resembles Jesus, not that he is Jesus. The Greek word that we have translated here as resembling is aphamoyo, a word that makes its only appearance in the New Testament right here in verse number three. There there are, are a few other related words. In the Greek text it would point to likeness or or comparing or a picture or forerunner all of which should lead us to conclude that if the author of Hebrews wanted us to see that Melchizedek was actually Jesus he would have likely chosen a different word than resembling he would have plainly stated that Melchizedek is Jesus or was Jesus The author of Hebrews had no question in identifying Jesus for who he truly was. In chapter 1, verse number 3, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So the author of Hebrews is very clear about who Jesus was, that he is God. The exact imprint. So this word resemble is helpful in our understanding. And I would contend again that this is not an actual Christophany or theophany, but rather a, tr- a, a simple forerunner, a picture looking forward to the great high priest and the great king who would come. Secondly, Melchizedek, if understood as a Christophany or a theophany, would be a non-typical Christophany that we do not see in the rest of scripture. The story of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is very, would be very different from other theophanies. How so? In Virtually all other theophanies, the person who is meeting with God has some awareness that they have been in the presence of the divine. But in the story of Melchizedek, there is no moment where Abraham acknowledges that he has been in the presence of God. So Melchizedek abruptly appears and disappears from this narrative in Genesis 14, but there is nothing in Genesis 14 that explicitly leads us to see that God himself has been present. So then Melchizedek should simply be understood as resembling Jesus, looking forward to Jesus, pointing to Jesus as our eternal priest and king, but still yet distinct from him, as all our other comparisons have made up to this point. So our second of our three observations that will serve as our final point this morning is this, Melchizedek represents Abraham before God and blesses him. First point was Melchizedek resembles jesus but is distinct from him point number two melchizedek represents abraham before god and blesses him we see this in uh, verses four through seven we have this blessing that is given by melchizedek and a tithe from the spoils of victory that is given by abraham the the only conclusion that the author of hebrews can make here is that melchizedek is superior to that of even abraham Not only is Melchizedek superior, but Melchizedek serves as a representative, a a priest on behalf of Abraham as he affirms Abraham's faith in God and pronounces a prayer of blessing and validates the promises of God towards Abraham. This all culminates here in verse number seven. Let's read that together. Verse number seven. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Oh, the beautiful Christological pictures that are painted here between this interaction of Melchizedek representing Abraham before God, pronouncing a blessing over Abraham as both priest and king. The superior one, Jesus Christ has blessed the inferior, which would be us, sinful mankind, by means of his own life, shedding his blood on the cross of Calvary to make propitiation of sins, being buried, raising again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Friends, this seemingly insignificant act of Melchizedek representing Abraham before God and blessing Abraham, it is dripping with gospel relevance I hope that we can see ourselves and see the gospel and see a great high priest, a merciful savior, the superior one who has blessed us, the inferior. Ephesians 1 verse number three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, how? In Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Colossians chapter number one, verses nine through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, get this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, that we would be thankful and grateful for the superior, blessing the inferior. Friends, I wonder, do you remember the gospel in that sense? Do you remember who you were before Christ? Do you remember how lost you really were? That you could do nothing? Nothing. You remember that you were that dead corpse that God breathes into and made alive in Christ Jesus? Ephesians 2, but God, He's the only one that could do that work. It is the superior one of Jesus Christ that pursues and draws the inferior, lost, sinful mankind to Himself. And what a blessing and hope that is, broke the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's because that beloved son, the priest, King Jesus Christ, it's because he has a right to sit at the right hand of the father. It's because of that inheritance that Jesus Christ has that we can have the hope of an inheritance for ourselves. This is the sure and steady anchor of Romans or excuse me of Hebrews chapter number 6 Just as Melchizedek represented Abraham to the father so does Jesus represent us before a holy god He has made a way friends there is through excuse me he has made a way through his own life He is our high priest just as Melchizedek pronounced a blessing on Abraham as the king of Salem, the king of peace, Jesus also pronounces a blessing over all who place their faith in Christ alone. Righteousness and peace. Beautiful characteristics of this priest king, Melchizedek, who was perfectly fulfilled and embodied ultimately in the personal work of Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. Peace is something that this world is longing for and looking for in everything and in all places but Jesus Christ. We're looking for maybe a, a quick fix or a three-step Self-help program, something to bring them happiness. We know there is no righteousness in our own, Our righteousness before God, or filthy rags. We know we can create no peace in of ourselves without God. We are uh, before God. We are enmity with God. Only Jesus Christ can provide righteousness and peace for your life. I wonder, friends, do you know righteousness? Have you experienced that great exchange where you have understood and realized that you are a sinner? The wages of sin is death. That that sin requires a payment. It has a penalty. It has a consequence. What I have earned for my sin is what? It is death. That's what my righteousness has earned. But the gift of God... eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ can become your righteousness in that great exchange where he takes your unrighteousness and he paid for them at the cross of Calvary and he paid for them as the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God and he cried out, it is finished. No more payment is needed. No more work needs to be done. The payment is in full through Jesus Christ. Praise God. And through Him paying for our unrighteousness, we have the opportunity through the power of the Holy Spirit to receive His righteousness. So that through the mediation and the ministry of this great high priest, when God looks at us and He relates to us, He sees only the righteousness of His perfect Son, Jesus Christ. This is positional justification. Justification. It is ours in Christ Jesus at the moment of salvation, as if we have never sinned. Practically speaking, we've talked a lot about sanctification, even in Hebrews. That's a a process, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Seat you, brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world right? But be transformed, how? By the renewing of your minds, that you may present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. This is your reasonable and spiritual worship. God, through Christ and the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, is making us more like Jesus Christ every single day. As we do what? Submit our lives to the authority and the dominion of this King Jesus Christ, we submit our lives to the authority, the power, of the word of God. As we engage in fellowship with the body of Christ, he has given us all these things for us to be in right relationship with the Lord. Do you know peace? Have you received the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those two beautiful realities can only be secured in the personal work of Jesus Christ. I wonder this morning, do you know Jesus as your high priest? And I wonder, is he king over your life? Have you recognized Jesus rightly, not just as an historical figure or somebody who preached some good things or somebody who made an impact in this world, but if you recognized him as Savior and Lord, he is the superior one that has blessed us, the inferior. What great mercy, love, and hope that we see from this priest king right here in Hebrews chapter number 7. And it will only continue to build as we continue to work through the remainder of chapter 7 over the next couple weeks. The superior priesthood of Melchizedek. Would you join me in prayer this morning? God, we thank you for your love towards us, and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word and all these beautiful facets of the gospel that we have the opportunity to unpack and unfold week after week, day after day. I pray that we as believers would hunger and thirst for righteousness, not of our own, but that of yours. I pray that we would, not place our affections on the things of this world, but we would put them on the things of God. We would be an above-minded Christian. We'd pursue your will, your way. Father, I pray that there's somebody here this morning who doesn't know you as their high priest and as their king. Maybe they are pronouncing dominion and sovereignty and authority over their own life. Maybe they're doing their own thing, pursuing their own way. I pray that you would wake them up to the realities of how empty and how meaningless a life lived for our own happiness can be. Happiness that we create this side of eternity in our own strength. It's like the seasons of this world that come and go, just like spring and summer and winter and fall come and go. So do the pleasures of sin for a season. I pray that we would be confronted with who Jesus is. We would be confronted with that same question that you asked your disciples when you walked on this earth. Who do you say that I am? And Peter proclaimed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. God, I pray for every person here this morning that they would recognize and respond to you rightly as the Christ, the son of the living God. I pray that they would recognize their need for a savior, confess and repent of their sins and receive your free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. I thank you for the simplicity that you have told us that if we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. Oh, Father, that there would be one that would cry out to you this morning to repent of their sins and receive that free gift. God, I pray that you would draw. Draw that that one who does not know you to yourself. God, I pray that we as a church would be passionate about Jesus. That just as you defeated death and rose up from the grave and you ascended, and you left your disciples with that great commission to go and to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, I pray that we would be passionate about the personal work of Jesus, this priest king, and that we would take the hope of Jesus, the good news that Jesus saves, that we would take that to the corner of the world that you have placed us. Right here in Liberty, Missouri, and, and Lee Summit, and Independence, and Kansas City, and, and Lawson, and Gladstone, and North Kansas City. All across the metro, God, you, you, you will send your church out. And I pray that we would take the hope of the gospel with us. That Jesus would be on our lips. That the hands and feet of Jesus would be felt and known as we minister and love others well. Father, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Friends.